people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. and some like it hot, now reveals the private life of Sherlock Holmes. Dr. Watson in his lifetime recorded some 60 cases demonstrating the singular gift of his friend Sherlock Holmes. But there were other adventures which for reasons of discretion were withheld from the public. Adventures which involved matters of a delicate and sometimes scandalous nature. The private life of Sherlock Holmes was anything but elementary. My dear Sherlock, there are certain affairs that do not come within the province of the private detective. The public has a right to know these things. Sherlock Holmes was a man of curious habits and eccentric tastes. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Thoroughly. But this will take care of it. And not always what he seemed to be. You have described me as six foot four, whereas I'm barely six foot one. Madame says you are shorter than she thought. Oh, I didn't mean to be. I hope I'm not being presumptuous. But there have been women in your life. I thought I would never find you. It's been such a long time. I found her body quite rewarding. Especially the palm of her right hand. What is it indeed that feeds on canary birds and sulfuric acid and has an engine for a heart? Open that door. Sherlock, when I said drop this case, it was not merely a suggestion, it was an order. By whose authority? By the authority of Her Majesty's government. take this with you. Your client isn't Madame Valador. It's the Imperial German government. Close. I saw it. The monster is getting closer and closer. took a genius to cover up Sherlock Holmes' vices, blunders, and bizarre tastes. Sherlock Holmes was a genius. The private life of Sherlock Holmes was anything but elementary. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Aaron Peterson. Hey, I'm glad to be back, especially about Sherlock Holmes. Also joining us is Mr. David McGregor. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. 
The game is afoot as we kick off a month looking at four films featuring Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's consulting detective Sherlock Holmes. One of the most adapted characters in the history of cinema, we've all grown up with a variety of actors and interpretations of Holmes. In this series, we are looking at four films from the 1970s, and in this episode, we are discussing Billy Wilder's 1970 film, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. The film stars Robert Stevens as Holmes and Colin Blakely as Watson, along with Christopher Lee as Mycroft Holmes and Geraldine Page as the mysterious Gabrielle Valadon. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please go ahead and turn off the podcast, watch the movie, and then come on back. We'll still be here. So, David, when was the first time you saw The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, and what did you think? It would have been, I can't tell you for certain. You know, my exposure to Sherlock Holmes was, I'd read the stories. My brother and I had a habit of going to book sales that on the last day of the sale, they would have bag day. You could buy a grocery bag of books for a dollar, or we would just throw in everything that looked promising. And one of those books was the complete Sherlock Holmes. So I'd read the stories and I'd watched Basil Rathbone films. Not that I'm that old, but you know, Universal Pictures sold all of those films to TV in the 1950s. And they were a staple on various stations, usually late at night. And so I read the stories. I watched the Basil Rathbone films. And that was about it up until 1984, when there was a British TV company called Granada, who came out with a Sherlock Holmes series featuring Jeremy Brett as Sherlock Holmes. And their goal was we are going to do the definitive adaptation. We're going to be faithful to the stories, faithful to the period. And I started watching those, and I thought they were just amazing. They were just terrific, especially the first couple of seasons. And I thought, well, I should check out you know other versions of this. There's you know films, there's TV shows. And so at some point in the late 80s or early 90s, I watched The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. And I think because I'd watched Rathbone and I'd watched Brett... I was really underwhelmed. I knew it was a Billy Wilder film. I liked a lot of the music. I liked a lot of the cinematography. But Robert Stevens as Sherlock Holmes was nothing like Rathbone, nothing like Jeremy Brett, not remotely heroic. You know, he's not that bright. He's not that athletic. He's not impressive really in any way. He starts the film taking injections of cocaine to deal with reality. He ends the film the same way. And he's more anti heroic. He's kind of a pathetic, disillusioned version of Sherlock Holmes. So I liked a lot of the film, but you know, for me, a lot of any Holmes story, play, TV show, movie stands on Sherlock Holmes and Watson and the relationship between the two. And I was, as I said, not real impressed at my, you know, my first impression. And Aaron, how about yourself? Well, we grew up poor, so we didn't have very much, but movies and books, that's about all I, all I had. And I, I love, for some reason, when I was young, I always had an, a knack for putting together solutions, like figuring out who done it and whatever I was reading, whatever I was watching. And my mom was an avid reader. And so she insisted that if you're going to watch mysteries, you should at least check out the most formidable, you know, detective in, in all of fiction, which was Sherlock Holmes. And I think the first book I, I read was Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And then I started, I went back to the original, which was Studying Scarlet, if I remember right. And uh, there's just there's something about the way the character was portrayed that really just caught my eye. I mean, he was such a 
genius, but also kind of dickish and also had this best friend that, you know, I mean, throughout the many, many books, I'm like, ah, what's going on with this friendship? Because there's, there were definitely times where you wonder, and this movie definitely touches on that. And then I got obsessed with the film versions of it and just every iteration of it. Basil Rathbone, of course, is in there. I mean, Nigel Bruce, they were a great combination, but there were so many other wonderful combinations. And this movie is one that was like off my radar for a long time because, you know, when I was coming up in my obsession with Sherlock Holmes was the 80s, hard to find, you know, early 70s films like this because it's very much a, it's a very unique take on Sherlock Holmes. It's not really the, the standard great mystery and really Sherlock is just there for mystery he's really the character of this one it was an interesting take and i liked it it's definitely not like i wouldn't put it at the top but i wouldn't put it at the bottom either it's it's very good it's just a very different take on sherlock holmes and i saw it eventually in the 90s somewhere and i don't i have no idea where i saw it i just remember i hunted it down finally and was able to watch it yeah this was a new one for me i had heard about this title for years i mean being a billy wilder fan i kind of came to it from that but then also like i said at the beginning we all grew up with sherlock holmes whether you are really aware of him or not and i really wasn't aware of him that much i kind of knew you know the basil rathbone films and i imagine every single person is just like oh wow there's a whole glut of sherlock holmes movies that are all coming out right now you could say that right now and look at things like Enola Holmes or the few years ago we had the Johnny Lee Miller TV show which may or may not still be going who knows <laughs> I think we it's finally done the, okay we had the BBC Sherlock which was kind of head to head there was the Korean or Japanese show Sherlock I mean there's just always there's always Sherlock Holmes there's always that but me growing up in the 70s I was just like oh yeah like Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Smarter Brother, The 7% Solution. Just it felt like there was always Sherlock Holmes in the air. Watching this one, I can really see how it informed the BBC Sherlock, the Stephen Moffat Sherlock, because, I mean, that relationship between the two men that you were talking about, and I'm sure that's in other things as well, but there were a lot of things where I was just like, oh, yeah, I remember this in Sherlock. I remember seeing benedict cumberbatch do almost the exact same thing and i think he portrays sherlock in much the same way that kind of antisocial, kind of a weak sauce type of guy he's not really a hero i don't see him jumping across reichenbach falls or something and just like you know having fisticuffs with people he he feels a little bit like a wimp he's smart but just a little off and you can see why people wouldn't necessarily like him I wouldn't call him a wimp, but he definitely doesn't pursue a fight. You know, he's thinking of the more intelligent way to get out of one is, is kind of how I would look at it. But I could see how you could see it that way. I, w I would say Cumberbatch is way more in the heroic spectrum. Yeah, he's than, too cool. Than, than Robert Stevens. I mean, Cumber Cumberbatch is, he's beautiful. He's got the hero coat. He's got the hero hairstyle. They shoot him from low angles on many occasions. He is an object of desire, especially in the first two seasons. He is distinctly heroic. He's brilliant. I mean, how Cumberbatch memorized some of the speeches that he's given and rattled them off at machine gun speed was incredible. His relationship with Watson, it's more friendship. He depends on him. They depend on one another. 
Uh, Robert Stevens, he just kind of floats through this. It's a very effeminate portrayal of Sherlock Holmes, very languid. It's his brother, Mycroft, that's played by Christopher Lee, who's the real smart one. You don't get that with Cumberbatch, especially in the first two seasons. He's the man in charge. He is definitely the hero. There's a reason that that show took off the way it did. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch, when that show premiered in 2010, he went to bed one night being a well-regarded character actor. And the next morning, he had become a pop culture sensation. And that was due to one show. And they had prepped it really well. You know, they had kind of primed the pump on the internet and with, uh, you know, other forms of media. But the reaction, the visceral reaction to his first performance as Sherlock Holmes was exceptional and, and rightly deserved as well. It's just such a disappointment as to what that show became. Oh, God, yeah. Those first two seasons, I totally agree with you. Really good. The introduction of Moriarty. Oh my God. Andrew Stevens, I think is the gentleman's name, right? It's great. Just amazing. Loved his portrayal of Moriarty and just that whole episode and especially the reveal around the pool and all that. So good. Once Moriarty dies, the show dies. And I don't know why there has to be more to Sherlock Holmes than just Moriarty. I mean, Moriarty does not show up in Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Moriarty won't show up in some of these other films probably this month, but he can be more than just Moriarty's nemesis. You know, there's got to be a little bit more to that. And that whole show is just like, okay, well, here's this amazing character. We kill him off. And now we're going to find some way to bring back the dead person. But that was awful. That was awful. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. (laughs) At one point, Mark. Gatiss, one of the producers and the guy that played Mycroft in the show, he literally said, we can do anything. We realized we can do anything we want. Once you get to that level of hubris, you're kind of doomed. They went heavily in the fan service direction. They realized that the preponderance of their audience was female. And so they amped up the roles of the female characters. They gave Watson's wife all of a sudden, she's a CIA agent with a you know amazing set of super skills. Mrs. Hudson is driving her Aston Martin at you know rocket speeds down the road, and you know Holmes and Watson they end up just kind of bubbling and holding each other and having a cuddle. And yeah, you know, it was nothing like the first two seasons. And if you you can even look at the ratings of the last season, they just crashed. They crashed and burned. And they were I mean some people obviously you know they liked it, but by and large, for you know, people like that like Sherlock Holmes, it was a real disappointment the way the series ended. I mean, even the thing with Gabrielle Valadon in this movie, and I'm jumping all the way to the end right now, and we'll come back, trust me. Jumping all the way to the end when he gets the letter and says, Oh, she was captured in Japan and executed, I'm just like, Oh, well, that's Irene Adler in Sherlock, the BBC Sherlock. It's like you know, she was caught, she was captured, but then they have that weird thing where it's like, no, no, Sherlock actually saved her and she's still out there someplace. And I'm like, okay, there are so many things that it, while I was watching this movie, I was just like, oh yeah, yeah. They really, they just stole that outright or just, you know, took things. And I know that there are a lot of things that are Sherlock Holmes lore that they definitely played with on the BBC show. And they're definitely doing it in this as well. I mean, the whole thing when they Holmes is bored and he's trying to figure out what he wants to do next. There's no challenging cases to him. 
And then you get the, you know, somebody reads something in a newspaper or you get a letter. I think it's a, a newspaper in this one where it's the uh, six little people, little men are missing. And I'm just like, okay, well, that's going to come back later on. You know, that always comes back later on. So it's like, I don't know if that happens in every home story where the, there's that kind of introduction of a potential mystery that just disappears for a while and then comes back at the end. But that's definitely something I've seen in the movies and in the TV series. You know, I grew up reading them more than watching them. And then I kind of got into watching them after that. Stephen King books and whatnot, ones that I've read or Dinkins or any of that stuff. You know, when I go watch those movies, I can remember big details from the books because there haven't been that many remakes. When I go watch Sherlock Holmes at this point, there's so much. It's so blended together. I've seen people argue over this. That never happened in the books. I'm like, yes, it did. Absolutely. And I don't know. I don't honestly, I can't remember if, if it was in the books or not at this point, because there's been so many. I think Sherlock is the most used character in film outside of Dracula or something. That, that's why it just all blends. And I read all those books, but still, because there's so much on movies and TV, it blends after a while. I think you could make the argument that Sherlock Holmes is the most successful fictional character ever. I mean, unless you want to throw Santa Claus into the mix. There's been any number of plays and pastiches and movies and TV shows. The one that's most, most faithful was the Granada series, the first two seasons. Jeremy Brett literally walked around the set with a Bible, a Sherlock Holmes Bible, and objected to any variations in dialogue. If you look at the series, they meticulously, they tried to frame some of the shots based on illustrations from the original stories. You know, it was done by the producer, the original producer of that series was a guy named Michael Cox, who with Jeremy Brett said, we're going to do Sherlock Holmes by the book. And that kind of slipped away once Jeremy Brett became ill. He was bipolar. He had a heart condition. He gained weight. And Michael Cox gave way to a different producer and the series kind of lost its way a little bit. But initially, that's as close as you're going to get of faithful adaptations of the original Arthur Condell stories. We're definitely going to be talking about the 7% solution later on this month. And I found it interesting that, that the Nicholas Meyer books do the same thing that Wilder and, and Isle Diamond are doing in this movie. And I'm sure, or I'm probably sure, that it had been done before. This whole idea of, oh, there are all of these other Watson stories that you are unfamiliar with. This movie opens with this idea of having an old trunk. You don't necessarily see the details, and we'll talk about those details around it in a bit here, but this old trunk, and it's got all of the ephemera, all of those things that you think of when you think of Sherlock Holmes. So you've got the deerstalker cap, you've got the magnifying glass, you even have the number of the house, 221B, is in the... <laughs> I don't know why he took that off of the uh, the door to the house, but that's in the trunk as well. Just all of these things where you're just like, oh yeah, this is Sherlock Holmes. These are all the trappings of Sherlock Holmes. And there's a manuscript of all of these things that Watson didn't feel comfortable with releasing at that time. But here we are 50 years later, and now we can release all of these details and talk about these other cases that Sherlock Holmes was on. That's pretty much the same thing that Nicholas Meyer is going to be doing in just a little bit here when it comes to the 7% solution, where it's like, oh yeah, no, here's this lost manuscript. And I like 
with the Nicholas Meyer books that each one has a different way of where was this manuscript? You know, like each one is based on this. And I like how Meyer will also do, and I know I'm jumping ahead to Nicholas Meyer episode, but just this whole thing of like, oh, well, you know, there are weird Americanisms and all this. And that's, that's the fault of Nicholas Meyer. That's not the fault of these manuscripts, you know, just how he like covers his bases with that. But in here we have this manuscript that has originally four chapters to this major manuscript. But what we see in the finished version is kind of like one and a half of those chapters. And it was interesting the way they pared it down. Cause I couldn't believe the first time I found the script for Private Life of Sherlock Holmes and I'm like, 260 pages? What are you talking about? This movie's not 260 minutes long. That's ridiculous. And then I start reading and I'm like, wow, the first 56 pages of this, if not more, there's maybe three pages that are in the beginning of this movie and all the rest of it is on the cutting room floor, like literally on the cutting room floor. It was all shot, but it was nowhere to be found. And the extras on this disc are remarkable to see this scene has audio, but no visuals. This scene has visuals, but no audio. This one just exists as, you know, stills, but there are so many parts of this movie that they just lopped out to get it down to this running time. For better or for worse, I think there are some things that are in those deleted scenes that were pretty quaint, but at the same time, it's like 260 minutes. They probably would have had to have at least an intermission, if not two, because this thing just went on forever. But what they ended up cutting and, and the way that they pieced this together still feels a little rocky where you have that opening with the, the Russian ballet or you've got that, and then you go into... The main story and it just feels a little like what is this what is this russian ballet stuff this doesn't really fit other than to introduce the idea of holmes bringing up oh no sorry russian ballerina beautiful lady i can't be your service stud i'm actually gay and so is watson and we left together and i love the moment when we see watson dancing with all of these beautiful women and then the way that they change out the dancers. So by the end, he's dancing with all of these men and he's facing one way, they're facing the other. And he finally looks and notices. That was very nice. That's definitely a good Billy Wilder touch. Well, I should note because you brought it up, the so-called unwritten Sherlock Holmes cases, that's Arthur Conan Doyle. I mean, he put that in the original stories. He has Watson throw in his sides the giant rat of Sumatra a story for which the world is not yet prepared. Rickletti of the club foot and his abominable wife. And so, yeah, that's red meat to people like Nicholas Meyer or to this film or to the three plays that I wrote. You know, I put aspects of the stories and I just embellished them into a, a new tale. So it's in there in the original uh, material because Arthur Conan Doyle was a smart guy. He knew what he was doing. You see so many writers taking taking a leap from that even still, Ryan Johnson, I mean, when he writes a mystery, he's very much going off the bones of Sherlock Holmes, even if he doesn't want to admit it. Oh yeah. Benoit Blanc is definitely very, uh, here in Holmes territory. And then even that little kind of like, is he gay? Is he not gay? Where you have Hugh Grant show up in the, in the glass onion movie 
Well, I can tell you at the time, you know, when it came out in 1970, this whole, the intimation, oh, Sherlock Holmes is gay, that was not well received by a lot of people in the Sherlockian fandom. In 1970, according to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, homosexuality was still a mental illness. It was not removed until 1974. The Stonewall riots in New York had taken place in 1969. There was really just a burgeoning gay rights movement. And in the reviews, some of the reviews and certainly some of the comments by Sherlockians, they described Sherlock Holmes in the film as they're making him a sex pervert. He's a degenerate. This is appalling. This is a revolting. And, you know, certainly from our 2023 perspective, you look back on that and, you know, you kind of wince a little bit because it's so unfeeling and, you know, just kind of inhumane too. But that was the general tenor of the time that, you know, being homosexual, that was Wilder's original attempt. When he thought about this, he thought, I'm going to make Sherlock Holmes gay. And that explains his drug addiction. And if he had run with that, it would not have been as well received as it was in 1970. It would be a lot better received now. And so he just kind of he just kind of fudged with it. It's like, yeah, he has no, I'm just kidding. It more it became more like junior high school kids looking through a dictionary for dirty words and giggling. And it, you know, certainly from a modern sensibility, it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth to, to watch the way it unfolds. I would I would argue he's more bi than anything. And and honestly, he's kind of flirting with homosexuality i don't know i don't think this movie paints him in a quarter put it that way i feel like by the end of the movie he's it's very open as to where his inclinations lie i agree i don't feel like he's really oh yeah sherlock is gay that's it or even sherlock is bi he definitely falls for the woman in this film and then you get the one scene that they cut out that he tells her when they're on the train together this whole thing about when he was in college at Oxford, I think it was, and he is part of a rowing team and they have this whole lottery as far as like, if we win this game, we'll have this lottery or whatever, regatta, sorry. And we'll have this lottery and whoever wins, we're going to pay for a prostitute. And he had been enamored with this beautiful girl and he goes to see this prostitute and it turns out to be this girl. And that kind of breaks his heart and he just, you know, I don't trust women. And it becomes this whole thing of, I don't trust women. Not like, I don't like women. I just don't trust them. And then he seems to fall for Gabrielle and everything seems to be okay. But yeah, I, I agree that it almost feels like, no, no, like it feels like they want their cake and eat it too. As far as like, no, no, he really isn't gay. Here's this lady that he's really falling for, and now he trusts women again. But even though she really deceives him, it's like, okay, which way are you going with this? I, I feel like they were toying with it. It was basically like, let's let's creep up to the line. We want to. We don't want to go too far. We pull it back when it matters most, and that's really what they do in the film. They pull it back. Well, in the original stories, in the first short story, A Scandal in Bohemia, uh, Sherlock Holmes is outwitted by Irene Adler. And thereafter, simply refers to her as the woman. And for many people, that's enough. Okay, he was smitten with this woman that was just as brilliant as he was. In other stories, he says flat out, I am not a wholehearted admirer of womankind. And he also says women are not to be trusted, not the best of them. So he does come across as just a wee bit misogynistic 
but that gets played with and changed as down through the years, different people adapting the stories have gone in different directions. I watched a lot of the Johnny Lee Miller TV show because my wife liked that TV show. Did you show. really? All right. Yeah, I was not a big fan. My wife liked it a lot, but that was interesting that they changed Watson to a woman, to Lucy Liu in that. So you've got a gender swap and a racial swap, plus the idea of them being in New York and living in this brownstone together. And of course, it's that whole will they, won't they thing throughout the entire series, very much like, you know, a Bones or a Moonlighting or one of those things where it's like, okay, if these two ever get come together, the show's probably going to suffer. So how are we going to handle this? But we always have to keep this will they, won't they thing going on. That's the most you know romantic that I see Holmes and Watson. I really didn't, haven't seen them be that romantic in other cases where it is two men playing the the roles. Well, the the difference, I mean, the, the BBC's Sherlock, that was created by two self-confessed fanboys of Sherlock Holmes. They love, eat, and breathe Sherlock Holmes. And the first two seasons, that's evident. Elementary was more kind of calculated effort by the producers. We want to create a police procedural that will be watched by people who watch CBS. And they created the police procedural, and then they kind of layered over and say it's Sherlock Holmes. From the Sherlockian community, it never had quite the buy-in and quite the investment that the original episodes of Sherlock did, and certainly not the original investment that people had in the Jeremy Brett series. It was considered, I mean, it was very successful. Elementary ran for seven seasons. I, you know, it had like 154 episodes. Nobody has played Sherlock Holmes more than Johnny Lee Miller. You know, in the pantheon of great, great Holmeses, you know, he's not up there. There's been, I would argue, there's been three and a half definitive Sherlock Holmeses, and that would be William Gillette on stage, Basil Rathbone on film, Jeremy Brett on TV, and I'm willing to throw Benedict Cumberbatch a half just for the first two seasons of Sherlock. None of those are my favorite. There must be something wrong with my headphones. I don't hear Robert Downey Jr. at all. Here's the deal with those, those two films. He and Guy Ritchie, those two films are based on one word. One word in the entire Sherlock Holmes canon, and that word is baritsu, which Sherlock Holmes explains to Watson is a Japanese form of wrestling that enabled him to extricate himself from the grip of Professor Moriarty. Guy Ritchie and Robert Downey Jr., they saw that. They are both martial arts enthusiasts. They both have black belts, and they were like, we can make Sherlock Holmes a superhero. And we'll give him a utility belt and he'll be a, you know, he'll be an amazing fighter. And that was really what brought them both in. Those two films were enormously successful. I mean, they brought in over a billion dollars. Is Robert Downey Jr. well-regarded in, you know, by a lot of Sherlockians? Not necessarily. Yeah, I like him. I, I enjoy, I enjoy it's, those it's films. Fun. It's fun. Uh, it's fun. Absolutely. But none of those are my, my, my favorite. Mine's still Nicholas Howe, so. Young Sherlock Holmes is probably my favorite interpretation of Sherlock Holmes, just because it, it goes a different route. It kind of makes, it gives him more emotion, shows him kind of becoming who he is, and it's always been my favorite. Always. I love that movie as well, but mostly because I grew up with it. I remember going to see it at the theater, and that was probably the first time I went to see a Sherlock Holmes movie. So it really stuck out for me. Plus, you had the cutting-edge computer graphics in that <laughs> yes, movie. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> 
You I did. Mean, that was a landmark movie. First it CGI, was. right? First CGI yeah, ever. Yep. Exactly. And I remember it so looked like the opening credits of Amazing Stories, and you had that whole Spielberg connection and stuff with that as well. So, yeah, I really like that movie as well. And you get Moriarty without even knowing you got Mar- Moriarty until the very end where you get that stinger. Who knew there was stingers were going to be popular? You get that moment when Samuel L. Jackson is like, Mr. Holmes, I'm putting together a team. God, I want to see that movie now. I want to, I want to see Samuel L. Jackson show up at Sherlock Holmes 3 with Robert Downey Jr. Just right, that. right. I, I'd watch that. I hold out hope that there will be a third uh, Sherlock Holmes movie. I'm still I, hoping. I thought those were fun. I mean, they're definitely not, they're not the deeper thinking Sherlock Holmes, but they are fun and the mysteries do work on their own level. So I, I really enjoyed those. They get rid of the women. Those two films are like, let's get rid of the women. It's fast. We'll throw them off trains if we have to. We'll do anything we can do. We'll kill them, get them out of the movie. It's bromance, 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 the end. And uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock is doing everything he can to make sure Watson is single forever. That's really like his, his goal is to not have women around because he wants him to himself. The other thing that they really cut out of this one as well was this whole thing. We talked about how Holmes is a drug addict and that we start with that, we end with that. But there was a scene that was again it plays very much into the seven percent solution it is watson trying to get sherlock to quit with the drugs and he's really sherlock is really getting deep in with drugs and it was hilarious to read the script and and read oh they're doing all of these treatments in i think it was sweden and in vienna and i was just like oh hey yeah go to vienna you'll meet sigmund freud and we'll have the seven percent solution Part of the the movie is called The Curious Case of the Upside Down Room, where Watson sets up an entire mystery for Sherlock to solve. But of course, Sherlock solves it within five minutes of walking into the room. <laughs> he just realizes that the corpse on the floor, he looks at the guy's feet and realizes that there had been a toe tag on the toe. And he's just like, oh, well, this was a corpse. He was already dead by the time he was in this room. And he Oh, the proprietor was blind and Watson, you didn't say anything because he would have recognized your voice and really puts it all together. And I like the idea of everything being, you know, from the floor to the ceiling and Lestrade shows up at that part and they put Lestrade on his head to kind of give him the perspective of the would-be killer. And then they just leave him that way and kind of go off on their own business. And that's when Holmes is like, you set this up for me. You want to give me something to put my mind to so that I quit taking the drugs. Well, sorry, it didn't work. So there's that whole thing as well. So really the drugs played a much bigger part in this originally. And I know we really haven't even talked about the movie itself because we're just talking about all the things around it and the things that weren't in here, but some of them are brilliant. Like there's a great moment of deduction where Holmes and Watson are coming back from a case and they're on a train. And this gentleman comes into their cabin and promptly falls asleep. And Holmes starts to use his powers of deduction to give this whole thing about how this guy is Italian. He's from Naples, that he uh, had been sleeping with this guy's wife. He even gives the name of the person that he was sleeping with. And he just goes through all of these things based upon the dress, what the, the guy said in Italian that one of his shoes is off, that his sock is dirty. He just like gives this whole thing and eventually the guy jumps off the train. But I'm just like, this is a nice little scene. Like you get to see 
Sherlock really doing his thing. And that was the thing from the BBC show that I loved the most is when Cumberbatch would come into the room and just be like, all right, and just start to list off everything. And you get all those great, like being shown around his head, the graphics in Sherlock were probably the best part for me. The beautiful mind. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. And that's the best thing. That's what I liked about in the Sherlock episode where he meets Irene Adler, the professional dominatrix, and she greets him stark naked. And all you see around him is question marks. Like he's got nothing. I got nothing. I can't read this at all. That I, was I thought great. that was a really, yeah, it was a really fun moment. The whole thing of him trying to unlock her phone for the entire episode. But yeah, this one really, it's the, the, the really quick story with the Russian ballerina. And then we move on to the mystery proper, which for me, isn't that strong of a mystery. And we kind of play around with some things like we get introduced to Mycroft and I like the introduction of Mycroft, especially that Mycroft is so far ahead of Holmes that he leaves a note for Holmes at the scene of this. There's this whole thing with this old lady who is running a mail drop. Plus there's a whole cage filled with canaries. So as soon as I see canaries, I'm like, okay, mining, you know, or, or gases, dangerous gases. I felt like I was farther ahead than Holmes was. And Holmes is always supposed to be for me anyway, five steps ahead of the reader. Well, I think that was the intent of the film. The film very much to me reads as though this is showing Holmes at his fallible. This is, this is Holmes. Not like you've seen him before. This is what happens when he does misguided by a woman, when he does kind of lose his balance, when he, he is taken off kilter a little bit. And that's what the whole movie is. Cause the whole movie is he's behind everybody. I mean, really Mycroft solves the mystery. There's really, you know, he's the one that points out, Hey, by the way, that's, that's not who you think it is. You like, who? And I mean, <laughs> it's very much Sherlock Holmes doesn't really do a whole lot. All he really figures out, if you think about it, is that the Loch Ness Monster is not real. And he knows that, oh, well, that's Morse code. That's really all he does in this movie that he figures out. I think what this is coming from is after Basil Rathbone, there was this assumption, well, Sherlock Holmes is done. Even Rathbone himself said, it's done. It's done. The only way it's viable anymore is as a Disney cartoon. Put a bow around it. No one can the make a mouse detective. <laughs> well, which did, is actually a very good film. And Basil Rathbone is, he's in that posthumously. They used the recordings that he had made to get Basil Rathbone's voice in the film as Sherlock Holmes. But uh, for decades after Rathbone and Nigel Bruce retired from the roles in 1946, everything was compared to, well, it's not Basil Rathbone. It's not Basil Rathbone. There was this kind of agreement, ah, what are we going to do? And they made an attempt, one more attempt to make a straight Sherlock Holmes film was made in 1965. It was called A Study in Terror. And the idea was, okay, he's a musty, old-fashioned Victorian gentleman up against James Bond, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. He's hopelessly out of style, out of fashion, but we'll pit him against Jack the Ripper. And That'll be good because now we've got the sex. Now we've got the violence. They cast a really good actor, John Neville as Sherlock Holmes. There was really high expectations for it. And it opened in 1965 in the UK. And as the gentle expression goes, did not meet projections. And when they were going to release it in the United States the next year in 1966, they were in producers, the distributors, the marketers were in a full-blown panic. How do we sell this? And they just looked around and they said, what's big in the United States right now? And the answer was Batman. 
this show with Adam West and Burt Ward, and they literally printed up posters comparing Sherlock Holmes to Adam West and Batman with Pow and I.E. and Biff, and he's the original Cape Crusader. And they tried to sell it as a campy type of Sherlock Holmes, which is nothing of the sort. It's actually a really well-regarded film today by a lot of people that like Sherlock Holmes, but it just bombed. At that point, the idea, we can't do a straight Sherlock Holmes film anymore. And so Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, along with uh, 7% Solution and Murder by Decree, they're anti-heroic uh, Holmes films. He's not a hero. He's, he's just a broken, disillusioned, ineffective, and, and certainly in 7% Solution drug addict. There was a pretty straightforward TV series in like 67 or 68, something like that, too, with Peter Cushing. I remember that. So there's there's one right around that time there was a TV show where they tried to go straight forward with Sherlock. Cushing was in a 1968 BBC series. A guy named Douglas Wilmer was in a 65 BBC series. And they both described their respective series as the worst experience of their professional lives. They did one series and they were done. I'm out. Um, so that was really unfortunate. And, you know, even worse, a lot of those episodes, the BBC just wiped because we can reuse the tape. I hated that practice. They would do that all the time. I loved seeing Christopher Lee as Mycroft, and I always liked that that sibling rivalry that they have and that Mycroft is the superior thinker, but he is the inferior human being. He wants nothing to do with anything. He's very um doesn't have the same social skills that Sherlock has, even though Sherlock barely has any social skills in some of these interpretations. So, yeah, seeing Christopher Lee and seeing Christopher Lee without a hairpiece, I never knew that he used a hairpiece. For a minute there, I'm like, shave his head? Because, I mean, I've seen him in so many things and he always has hair. I guess he just doesn't really have it. He's got a wig. He's Sean Connery. Who knew? I would actually double check that. I think he did have hair. I think they put him in a bald cap. Just doing a little fact checking. According to PeterCushingBlog.com, for the majority of his film roles, from Hammer's Hound of the Baskervilles onwards in 1959, Lee wore pieces, with the exception of Mycroft Holmes in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, 1970. Here Lee, for the only time, went completely sans toupee. When this brave but strange decision drew a little too much attention, Lee explained it away as an act of dedication to playing the role and that he had simply shaved his head. Christopher Lee was Sir Henry Baskerville in the 1959 version Hammer's version of The Hound of the Baskervilles, and then he was Sherlock Holmes in a black-and-white West German film in 1962 called Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Diamonds. Deadly Necklace, I'm sorry. That sounds almost like a crimmy. He was really proud of his performance, but he said the ultimate result was a badly edited hodgepodge of nonsense because when they released it in English, they duffed his voice out. They added someone else's voice in. And then... The man with the best voice of all time? What? Yeah, it was like a couple movies. He did a couple movies, right? Christopher Lee was in a film called Sherlock Holmes and the Leading Lady in 1991. And then an incident at Victoria Falls. With Patrick McNee as his Watson. And that was kind of, if you guys seen those, they're a little embarrassing because they're both kind of geriatrics. But they've got hot ladies that will do anything to be with them. What's her name? Morgan Fairchild, I think, is like uh, lusting after Sherlock Holmes, who's my wife. Yes, yeah. is an old old man at that time. Yeah. Hopefully, you guys are old enough to remember that joke, so <laughs> so I don't have to explain it. Yeah, he was the real deal, and here 
and he shows up on the extras for this disc and he's just like oh i've worked with all of these people but working with billy wilder was such a treat i'm just like okay yeah well that's cool that you think that i don't know if the end result in the movie was that much of a treat but i'm glad you had a good time you said working with wilder was the best he was the best director he ever worked with i think in large part it was because he was feeling very typecast as dracula and it was wilder that kind of pulled him out of that and didn't make a lot of it except for one time when there was a, a bat flying around the set up in scotland and, and billy wilder said this will make you feel comfortable that was about the only reference that he made to his dracula career so i think lee was just grateful to him for giving him such an important role in this film sherlock really doesn't solve the mystery it's basically handed to him by his brother she's this she's this this is this this is this and you know it's like luckily holmes figures out the whole thing with the poison and you know if you mix the salt water with with the other then you get the gas and then that's how you know the, the birds the canaries are bleached inside of this guy's coffin emile's coffin her alleged husband who is probably not her husband at all right because she's a actually a german agent yes as soon as i see all those friars on the the train as well i'm just like okay well those guys don't speak english that's why they're not speaking at all so again i'm ahead of this movie and i'm just like i don't want to be ahead of this movie i don't want to be smarter than sherlock holmes which is a weird position to be put it because i'm okay being smarter than father brown or you know mr midsummer you know like vera any of these people but Sherlock Holmes is supposed to surprise me with these things that he just kind of pulls out of the air and then you go, oh, yeah, no, that was true. Okay. Well, again, I think, I really think it's what Billy Wilder was trying to do. He was trying to create, you know, I'm going to make a Sherlock Holmes movie that is not at all what you would expect. It's going to be more about uh, the mistakes, the gaffes, the, the errors that he would make and how he can be caught off guard. And it does happen. He is fallible. He's not perfect. Because this is the 70s, right? And this is the dawn of, we're going to make our heroes flawed, very flawed. And even Sherlock Holmes, we're even going to make Sherlock Holmes flawed with his personal history and how this woman really seduced him kind of and got him off key. And he doesn't really solve a mystery. And we're watching a whole movie where we're expecting all of the things you're talking about expecting and it never really happens. The only person that's more kind than Sherlock Holmes is Watson. I mean, we're way ahead of Sherlock. <laughs> my crossway ahead of Sherlock, but Watson, he's still in the dark at the end. Well, it's a film that on the one hand, it's trying to capture the mystique, but it's also debunking the myth. You know, Watson's the creator of the myth in the original stories. And now 50 years after his death, it's Watson who's the debunker. And that's an odd kind of tension to try to maintain. And I think that, you know, it, it's not totally consistent. Either Holmes is the hero and he's amazing or he's a fraud basically. And this film kind of oscillates on both sides of that line. Yeah. There's a, another scene that was cut out, which was the, was it the curious case of the naked honeymooners or something like that, where they're on a boat or a ship, I should say, they have found two bodies on the boat. So they send Holmes and Watson down to take a look. Watson is like, I've been with you for so many years. I know all your tricks. I can do this as well. Give me a case. And then Sherlock's like, yeah, sure. Here's these two corpses. I'm, you know, this is your case. Do it up. And so 
Watson starts doing this whole thing. He goes around and he's just like, oh, well, you know, I see this bottle of champagne that the champagne was probably spiked, but with the cork in there, there's no way that could get the poison in. So, oh, it must be these swizzle sticks and just like lays out all of these things. And then you find out that they're actually in the wrong room and that the two people, the two naked honeymooners are actually still alive and pretty offended by being woken up by basically Watson feeling the woman's stomach because he thinks that she had poisoning and that her stomach would be bloated. So you get that where it's like Holmes is like, hey, wrong room, stupid. And so it's like, well, Holmes is really super smart and he's got all this stuff figured out. And he's just humoring Watson through the entire thing. But then it's like, well, yeah, we're, we're, it's kind of like this cognitive dissonance as far as like, well, Holmes really isn't that smart. So he's just fucking with his friend, but really maybe shouldn't have been. So that scene it was a good scene, but just, again, it kind of contradicts the rest of the movie. I can really see why they lost that one. Wilder considered, you know, this is going to be a symphony in four parts. That was the original conception. And it was going to be, there was going to be a dramatic sequence. There was going to be comedy. There was going to be farce. There was going to be romance. Uh, the scene with the naked honeymooners, that was clearly, that's the farcical episode. And it is available on the Blu-ray DVD extras or whatever. And yeah, as a self-contained scene, it's really well done. And it's very funny. Um, it's very well played for comedy, but it is a, feels really disconnected from the general tone of the rest of the film. Well, it's good that they scrapped it. But again, to talk about that whole debunker versus, you know, just the way that Watson will rewrite history. I think it's in that segment where they're talking about how they were just in Constantinople. That's right, because um, Watson is wearing a fez, and then eventually they switch hats. But he's talking about this case they were just on, where it was a harem and the sheik and all this. And, of course, this being Victorian times, you've got Sherlock going, well, you know, the, re the readers can't handle that. You know, you, you don't want to put that in print type of thing. And so Watson just starts to talk about, well, no, actually, I changed changed the harem to a girl's school and I changed this, you know, the sheik to a teacher and just all of these things. I'm just like, oh, okay. So we already know, or this is telling us that what we've read in the magazines are not the true things that Watson is going to be embellishing all of this stuff and changing things to, for our Victorian sensibilities. In terms of Billy Wilder films, in a lot of his films, there's a character that basically plays the role of the dupe. And here it's Sherlock Holmes is the dupe. Which is, you know, it's not really what most people expect when they watch a Sherlock Holmes movie that he's the dupe, but that's certainly the case here. Of all the things in this movie for me to like or dislike, the thing that I liked the most was the scene at the fake funeral in the churchyard where you get to see the the six little men are, are back and they're pretending to be children and they're in front of these graves and you find out, oh, the Germans are using these little people because... They take up less room, take up less oxygen. They're perfect for submarines. The head groundskeeper, head grave digger is Stanley Holloway. And he starts talking with Sherlock Holmes. And I'm just like, I know that voice. That is Alfred Doolittle from, from My Fair Lady. I was so happy because I don't know if I've ever seen him in anything other than My Fair Lady. And as soon as his mouth opened, I was just like, wow, that voice is so great. And I was just really happy for like three or four minutes during in this movie when it's just Stanley Holloway kind of giving a little bit of a, a monologue about, you know, the grave and all this. It's like, 
okay, so of all the things, I mean, I didn't dislike this movie. I didn't hate this movie by any stretch of the imagination. I just wasn't that thrilled by it, but I definitely was thrilled by this character actor showing up. I mean, Wilder thought he conceived, he'd been thinking about this for years. He originally conceived of this as a, as a musical, as a Broadway musical. And he's working on this in the 1950s. And then he decided, no, I think it's going to be a movie. And his original idea was, I want Peter O'Toole as Sherlock Holmes. And I want Peter Sellers as Dr. Watson, which I would love to have seen that film. Unfortunately, that did not come off. Uh, but this was a passion project for him. Wilder was a self-described homesophiliac, and he described the film as his Valentine to Sherlock Holmes. And the original, whatever it was, three-hour, twenty-minute film that got chopped down to two hours. As he said, when he saw the the edited version, he had tears in his eyes. So it's it's unfortunate. Positive tears or negative tears? Negative tears. By watching the film, there's not a moment where I go. This is somebody who loves Sherlock Holmes. To me, this, this very much comes across as this is somebody who wants to turn the myth of Sherlock Holmes more to their, their visual approval. It's, it's not someone, it doesn't come across as written by someone who absolutely loves Sherlock Holmes. There's a lot of playing with the myths. Well, there's people that will argue that, and I'm not sure I would argue it, there's people that have said this is his most personal film, that... He's depicting Holmes as an aging maestro, which is in 1970, that's what Billy Wilder was. And he was a few years removed from any of his big, popular, most successful films. And this was kind of the coda. This was supposed to be a masterwork. And certainly he put who knows how many hours into writing the screenplay and getting this off off the ground and just didn't end up the way that he thought it would end up. I think he had one more decade worth of films in him after this. But, you know, this was a far cry from a decade before when he was doing The Apartment or even Irma La Deuce or The Fortune Cookie. I was the end product. I can see why I brought him to tears if this was such a personal thing for him because, yeah, it just feels like it kind of gets gutted. And what's left is, it feels almost TV movie-esque at times. You know, even with like the, it's just that kind of cheesy way of like, or we know that the submarine is going to explode and then it finally does. And then the way that the Bible and bottle of champagne float to the surface and there's that iris in on them because of we're looking through a spyglass. I'm just like, wow, that's really just handing it to you. Didn't feel like it had that visual panache that I would expect from Billy Wilder film. And it doesn't even have that kind of snappy dialogue there were a couple lines there was one line i really laughed at which was were you expecting someone not at this hour maybe mrs hudson is entertaining i never found her sir that made me laugh out loud but there weren't that many other times where it's just like oh this is genuinely funny or this is genuinely entertaining there's like one moment where they're in danger and i'm just like well it's like oh i'm just going to get out of this and basically there was no danger that's when Mycroft shows up and it's just like, you've been working for the Germans the whole time. You idiot. You know, you, what was he say? She used you the way that people use hogs to find truffles. I'm like, wow. Okay. You just really put him in his place. Well, by all accounts, you know, in the production, Wilder was still being Billy Wilder. He was complete control freak telling actors, I want this syllable. 
the same time you put this object down and like cut, do it again and do it again. They shut down production because Robert Stevens had a nervous breakdown and or suicide attempt, depending on who you believe. Um, he was, at that time, he was married to Maggie Smith and their marriage was kind of on the rocks and he was working on this film while there's an extremely demanding director and he fell apart and they shut down production briefly so he could uh, pull himself together. He had to be taken to the hospital for an overdose and whether or not it was intentional or not, I think it's still a mystery to this day. I was kind of unfamiliar with him. I know I've seen him in things, but he was definitely not as familiar as of a face as Colin Blakely. He was very familiar to me, and I'm not sure if that's because of, you just mentioned Peter Sellers. I'm not sure if that's because of him being in some of the Pink Panther movies or Murder on the Orient Express, which I've seen a lot. But yeah, he was such a familiar face. And then he even was playing a double role in this movie and that he was the younger uh, or the, the descendant of Dr. Watson and shows up at the bank. And there's this whole thing at the beginning of them at this bank. And he's like, oh, I'm in town for this uh, you know, veterinary thing because now he's a vet. He's not a medical doctor. He's like, I was in town. I figured I'd stop by and pick up this thing that you know is my family heirloom. And I love the the bank manager is like, I have not retired from this position because I've been waiting for you to show up for me to see what's inside of this thing. Cause he is a huge Sherlockian. He's just like, when the chest gets opened, he's the one that's taking out all of the things and like puts on the deer stalker, starts looking through the magnifying glass, all of these things. And I thought that was really cute. That was really kind of nice. This was supposed to be Wilder's comeback film, and it was supposed to make Robert Stevens a star. It didn't happen in either instance. Shouldn't have. Shouldn't have in either instance. I, I, he just doesn't. He's fine, but he's never great at any moment. Well, he was really, really highly regarded on stage. He was considered, this is the guy who's the heir to Laurence Olivier. Uh, he, that's how well thought of he was. And, you know, a great Shakespearean actor, like many British actors are, but it just never came about. You know, this was supposed to be the film that was going to launch him. And that, that launch never, you know, that never happened. There was one moment where he was laying back, looking up at the ceiling, and I thought he looked a lot like Peter O'Toole. So you saying that, you know, O'Toole was, was the dream, you know, for that. But I would wonder what it would be like if a tool was Watson and Sellers was Holmes, just because Sellers had that amazing knack of, of falling into makeup and just being other characters. And that was, that's something that I sometimes see in Holmes adaptations and sometimes don't this whole thing of Holmes being the master of disguise. Uh, yeah, I, I would have loved to see that version. I mean, more recently there was a film with Will Ferrell, uh, Holmes and Watson. That was Awful. Absolutely abysmal. Absolutely. I'm still mad that they made it. I'm mad that I saw it. I'm mad that it exists. I'm mad that it's still there. I'm just mad. Well, the, uh, the reason I brought it up was because the original conception was to have Sasha Baron Cohen be Holmes. Yeah, I'd pay to see that. Along with Hound of the Basketballs done by Dudley Moore and Peter Cook in the 1970s, Holmes and Watson is largely considered to be one of the worst Sherlock Holmes movies ever. And that's just recently. I'm like, man, you're shot to the top. Good job. 
And it should, nothing about it should have been that bad. You know, I mean, remember without a clue, that was, that was a fun take on it a little bit. This was trying to be in that same vein. And you had two, two actors that have played off each other pretty well. I mean, John C. Riley and Will Ferrell have always had a good chemistry and it just was like nothing about that movie worked. Nothing about that movie worked. In the 1930s, they made a version of The Hound of the Baskervilles featuring an actor by the name of Robert Rental. I've never seen it because apparently it still exists, but nobody wants to like bring it out back into public because it was such a disaster. Uh, but that coupled with the, the Dudley Moore, Peter Cook, Hound of the Baskervilles and Holmes and Watson, that's the, the unholy triumvirate of bad Sherlock Holmes films. I own this movie. I owned the 1972 Czech version of Sherlock Holmes, one of a few from what I understand. And it's got, you know, Radovan Lukaszki as Sherlock Holmes. I mean, Uri Hertz is in it. There's a lot of familiar faces. You know, you guys know I'm a big Czech fan. I have the movie, but so far, no subtitles have ever shown up. And I can't see watching a Sherlock Holmes movie without the dialogue and without, you know, because that's going to clue you into what's actually going on because these movies can go off the rails pretty quickly. There can suddenly be supernatural elements that aren't really supernatural. There's, you know, wordplay a lot of times. It's just that's part of the pleasure of a lot of these movies is they feel very literary, obviously, because of the source. But, you know, I, I'm not going to get that from an unsubtitled version of this movie. So hopefully one of these days those will show up. Well, there were many, many, many silent films with Sherlock Holmes in which he was transformed into a furious man of action simply because you could make money with the name Sherlock Holmes. And so the first Sherlock... And there's no rights entanglements. Uh, n well, no. The whole rights and copyrights has been an issue with Sherlock Holmes pretty much since its inception. You know, the first, the first two stories were not protected by U.S. copyright. Uh, the short stories and subsequently everything after was covered by copyright. But then film rights, that was, I believe it was the Townsend Act in 1912 that finally gave writers some kind of control over their material. But yeah, it was the Wild West out there. There was one gentleman, he made 47 um, silent films from 1921 to 1923 that had the approval of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And only a few of them are available for viewing right now. His name is Eileen Norwood. And they were for us, a British film company called Stoll, S-T-O-L-L. And the British Film Institute is in the process of getting all of those films restored. And so everybody in the Sherlockian community is pretty geeked about that, but there's no plans to actually digitize them and make them available for distribution. And they're owned apparently by Andrew Lloyd Webber. So you would think he would have the financial means to make these films available. So everyone's very pleased that the films are being restored and digitized, but at present there's no real plan to get them out on Blu-ray or in streaming or anything. I've got to believe that that will happen. The last film in the series was made in 1923, so this is like the 100th anniversary. So that's the goal, is to get these silent films. And admittedly, the ones I've seen have a lot of title cards. A lot of title cards, because it's Sherlock Holmes. you got a lot of dialogue. But uh, he was an actor. He took it really seriously. Eileen Norwood was determined to do well by Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, not just exploit the name, but to really do as best a version as he could. 
So I would love to see those films if uh, if they become available. Yeah, there was uh, the first definitive Sherlock Holmes, American actor, stage actor by the name of William Gillette was, you know, he was encouraged and he did. He made a film of his play in 1960 and he viewed it more as a way to record and document the play as, as opposed to like a, a film in its own right. And unfortunately disappeared shortly after it premiered, but then it was rediscovered and put back together and it's now available. Premiered again in 2015. And in fact, I went to go see it in Ann Arbor at uh, one of the theaters down there that has an, or- an organ and they played the film with the original organ. And it's available on Blu-ray. And you it's worth watching. I mean, just to get an idea of the, the guy that was acclaimed for over three decades, this is the guy. This is the definitive Sherlock Holmes, hands down. And um, that was the case up until Basil Rathbone picked up his deer stalker in the and made those films from nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty six. How many films did he make? Rathbone? He made two be called A list films of for twentieth century Fox. And then they decided we're not going to make any more. They made two films in 1939, The Hound of the Baskervilles and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And he and Nigel Bruce both started appearing as Holmes and Watson on radio. But then 20th Century Fox said, we're done. And they continued on radio. And then in 1942, uh, Universal Pictures said, well, we're going to pick this up. We're going to bring it into the modern day. They're going to be B pictures. They're all going to be about 65 minutes long. And they made 12 of those. So there's a total of 14 films. Yeah. Still, when I think of Cinematic Holmes, he's still the first name that comes to my mind, even though I think I've seen some of them, but not 14. That's for sure. I've seen all of them. I remember you used to be able to get those, what, videotapes and they'd be like $3 or something and you'd get three or four of them on, on one. So you'd have to hunt them all down and see if you could get, if you could get all of them. The issue with that fil- those films is a lot of people, especially a lot of Sherlock Holmes fans, they, they object to Nigel Bruce because he's such a clown. He's such a buffoon. And it's like he's hanging with this really powerful, dark, almost noirish uh, version of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, that's the thing about Basil Rathbone. He came to the role as arguably the, one of the best villains the film industry had ever seen. I mean, I think you could argue Eric, Eric von Stroheim had a bunch of Hun roles and then he went behind the camera. And after that, Basil Rathbone was a bad guy. He made a great Nazi. He made a great opponent of uh, Robin Hood. And then he took on Sherlock Holmes and he had that dark edge to him. And that was the first series. That's what really cemented Holmes and Watson in the public mind. Because that's in every issue, you know, play or TV show or movie with Holmes and Watson, you have the problem of Watson, which is if he's not the narrator, what the hell is he going to do? And the Rathbone and Bruce films were the first incarnation that solved that problem. We're going to make him comic relief and we're going to make him lovable. And while today people will carp about, well, that's a goofball performance. At the time, Nigel Bruce got more fan mail than Basil Rathbone did. People loved him. I haven't heard this argument from from fans of of that. Uh, I've never had a problem with Nigel Bruce at all. I thought he was a nice balance to, to Basil Rathbone, personally. I like it. I like like the films. In fact, Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat, the creators of uh, BBC Sherlock, you know, when they were asked about it, they said, well, we know it's heresy, but we like those Bat Rathbone Bruce movies. 
Well, when people talk about, you know, who's a good Watson, the two of the people at the top of the list were in the Jeremy Brett series. His first Watson was an actor by the name of David Burke, who quit the series because he wanted to appear in Shakespeare with his wife. And he was replaced by Edward Hardwick. And both of those, if you ask, you know, Holmesy and Sherlockians, they're kind of the A standard of that's, that's a great Watson. I would say, um, was it Martin Freeman? I like his take a lot. I, I like his take as well. I like his take way more than I like Benedict Cumberbatch. And I don't know that's heresy, but th- there's just something about how he approached it that was different from every other actor that kind of approached Watson. Well, one of the, it's not that it's generally known, one of the greatest Holmes-Watson pairings is actually in a USSR series that came out in the late 1970s into the 80s. And it is considered to be the single greatest television series ever produced in the USSR. And it's available, uh, the subtitles are a little dodgy, uh, but it's worth looking up if you like Sherlock Holmes. It's just amazing. It's just terrific. Because you realize that it kind of evolved on its own. It's not responding to previous incarnations of Sherlock Holmes. And it's just great. The guy who plays Sherlock Holmes, Livinoff, is just, he's a great Holmes. His Watson is a great Watson. Unfortunately, his Watson was subsequently beaten to death. Uh, in, well, in, spoiler alert. Oh, in real life, the actor, and it's a, mi- a mystery that has remained unsolved to this day. What's interesting about the series is that it was you know, produced in the USSR, and it was only kind of discovered, they started to play it like in East Berlin. And the signals would leak over to West Berlin and people had like their VCRs. And it was, you know, part of the fun was like, oh my God, what is this? We're not supposed to see this. And it it slowly kind of leaked out into, you know, Western media that there was this amazing series that had been produced in in Russia with a lot of love. The director was clearly a big Holmes fan. And for devotees of Sherlock Holmes, it ranks very, very high in terms of uh, affection and uh, you know the esteem that it's held. Yeah, I think the most buffoonish that Watson gets in this movie is the whole thing with the Loch Ness Monster. This is way, way goofier than Nigel Bruce ever was. <laughs> so, yeah, obviously there is no Loch Ness Monster in this movie. It's a submarine. Whoa, big revelation. Wow. Were you wondering, were you, were you like, hey, I wonder if they're going for a real Loch Ness, then you actually see them bump into it, and you're like, oh, please, God, please, please, don't let that be real. I did like, I mean, because, you know, it's personal, like my parents were both people from Scotland, so I, I've been to Scotland, I've been on Loch Ness, and, you know, it's nice to see that. It's obviously very scenic, it's very beautiful when it's not raining. So, I, yeah, I like that part a lot. You know, they discovered the original, they were trying to shoot on Loch Ness with this Loch Ness monster and it sank. And it was only recovered a few years ago. Now, somebody found it at the bottom of Loch Ness, I want to say like six or seven years ago. And it's, it sank in 1970. Yeah. If I looked like that thing, I would have sank too. I just would have ended it all. Goodbye, crew world. I look like a Sesame Street doll. They got that really cool castle, uh, Arkert, Arkert, as it's set, you know, in Scottish. And it's just a beautiful ruin. And so, yeah, a lot of a lot of touches in this that I really, I, I thought were really terrific. Yeah, when they go up to Scotland, which is probably, what, like the last third of this film, 
yeah, it's nice that there's actually like location shooting. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Because so much of the beginning is very set bound. I mean, it looks good. It looks very good. I can't complain about the cinematography of this. I did say that it looks a little bit like a TV movie. There's some times where it feels like that. And just TV movie in the sense that you're not getting a lot of subtlety. We're not using the wide screen very well. You know, just like the mise-en-scene is not as as brilliant as it could be you know you do have some really good moments and then you've got some where you're just like eh, all right that could have been better but yeah i i really liked those castles i think the i'm not sure if this is the same castle but the one from highlander is also in this movie from what i've read so that's pretty cool i was just gonna add i'm not sure because it just occurred to me about robert stevens and sherlock holmes like he his career did not take off but um, he did appear as Sherlock Holmes on stage. Uh, there, there was a revival of the play written by William Gillette in 1899, and he was picked to play Holmes. And then, you guys want to take a guess at who was given the role of Holmes when the show went on the road? What year was it? 1976. Dudley Moore. Leonard Nimoy. Oh, wow. Oh, the, Leonard Nimoy. I paid a Yeah, that. Sherlock Holmes on the road. Yeah. Yeah, he... He even came to Detroit. They did a production in Detroit with Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy also played Holmes in a TV episode, The Interior Motive, it was called. And yeah, yeah, it was Leonard Nimoy as Sherlock Holmes and Burt Blackwell as Dr. Watson. It's only 20 minutes long. It's just one episode of a TV series. Well, there's a you know, considerable crossover between Star Trek and Sherlock Holmes. We'll be talking about the 7% solution pretty soon. <laughs> okay. All right. What other ways that are there crossover between the two worlds? Well, I mean, clearly Spock is Sherlockian. You know, he's a, a creature of pure logic. And then when you get to Star Trek, oh, the new generation. Next generation. Yeah. I forgot about yeah. the holodeck. Yeah. Yeah. And Data dresses up. He cosplays Sherlock Holmes and encounters Professor Moriarty and Jordy is his Watson. Yeah. And in two, in two separate episodes. Yeah. I try to forget those holodeck episodes if I can. All the, I mean, that's also where we get them being the, the merry men and all that. Oh boy. Well, I've already ruined the end of this movie. We already find out that, that uh, Gabrielle was a spy and no, they actually had real affection and she goes off to Japan and gets killed and then he goes off and does some cocaine, and that's the end of the movie. Ends on this real somber note. Though there was, at one point, the editor proposed that they move the scene of one of the Russian dancers coming to the house, coming to 221 B Baker Street, uh, and that be the end of the movie. So you've got like him, yeah, you've got him delivering a Stradivarius violin to Holmes, and then he also, I think he gives a rose to Watson, and that was supposed to be the end of the movie. So it would have been much more like a, some like it hot, you know, nobody's perfect type of twist at the end. That would have been kind of cute, but apparently Billy Wilder was not having any of that. I actually like, I actually like this ending. There, there are several aspects of the last third that make it a far more interesting movie than I think the first two thirds were when it was kind of like trying to find its footing or where it was really headed. I did. I like the monk tie in the little person tie in, which, you know, kind of, kind of goes back to, to hit or to, um, the stories. And 
and I really love the relationship as it evolved. And at the end, once he is aware of who she is, and then that happens to her, you know, where basically he made the deal to save her. And what that does is that puts her back in their clutches to use again. And this time she doesn't make it out. Okay. Obviously not as great a spy as we'd like to think because she keeps getting caught, but it was a, it was a nice emotional punch. I, I really liked the end and how Watson handled it, how Sherlock handled it, even though, you know, a little cocaine probably isn't the way to handle it, but I really, really liked the emotional punch at the end. I like the whole thing of her using her parasol to do the Morse code at him as she's driving away. I thought it's really a sweet moment. That was sweet because you needed that extra moment. They never really had great words. I mean, Alvita Zane or whatever, but they never had that great exchange that you wanted. So him to get that Morse code, I think, was, was important for the film. But he's a hero and heroes can't have women. That's the rule. They get in the way of being heroic. Darn women, those getting in the way. Well, I remember watching, it was one of the Rambo films and, you know, with Sylvester Stallone. And I think he evinces a few shreds of affection for a Vietnamese girl. And I'm like, okay, she's dead. How long is that? Oh, she's dead. Yeah. that You can't have that. You can't have that, you know, because it gets in the way of the hero being heroic. That's, I will. That's why you got to watch Shaft then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's one of the reasons, you know, I think you could argue that why was Sherlock Holmes popular in the first place as a literary character? Because he came about at a time in which the whole idea of heroism had been considerably diminished in Victorian fiction, that heroes were bad. We don't want heroes. They cause trouble. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, some of the Victorian novelists, Anthony Trollope and William Thackeray, in particular, they explicitly wrote novels without a hero. And that was supposed to be a thing. It's just a gentleman. And so Sherlock Holmes kind of reinvigorated the whole notion of a heroic personality who is, you know, he's not out for conquest. He's not out for money. He's not out for romance. He's trying to make the world a better place. And he's willing to help anybody from royalty down to uh, anybody in the working class. And that's, I think, part of why he took off in popularity in the 1890s. You know, obviously, I run a Columbo podcast as well, and we like to put him up against other detectives. And what you're saying as far as being able to help rich, the wealthy, the royals, all these, but also sticking up for the little guy, that's what makes Columbo Columbo is sticking up for the little guy and always, you know, putting the screws to the upper class. So I can definitely see that as being quite an appeal, and especially if he's willing to help out whoever needs the help. I, I would argue Sherlock Holmes is, is more about the game itself than the actual helping. That works out great for him, and it makes him look heroic to many degrees, but he, he wants to solve whatever the mystery is, and he doesn't care who it's for, because anything that's very complicated, very convoluted, something that he can unravel, it's all about the chess game for him. And and I honestly think, from my perspective, in terms of why it's an, he's endured as a character... It's because of that. It's because it isn't about romantic entanglement. It's not about anything other than solving the puzzle. And, you know, we have the pieces. Can he solve it? We know he will, but how is he going to solve it? How is he going to figure it out? And that's that's why I've always loved the character, because it's not about the, the romantic relationships, which I think gets bogged down a lot of Hollywood projects. It's It's nice to see a character which is just about a mystery. I just want the mystery. Yeah, that's valid. I mean, he, he epitomizes 
you know, what makes human beings human beings and kind of separate and distinct from other species is our facility for pattern recognition. And obviously Sherlock Holmes represents the epitome of that. He's, he, he, can, he can perceive the world and then he can logically proceed from his observations to deduce what has happened. And that's what makes human beings human beings. You know, from looking up in the sky and seeing, well, the stars are shifting, that means the seasons are changing. And our ability of pattern recognition is what makes human beings human beings. And he's the, the ultimate character that does that. Is it Genevieve Page? Is that her name? She's, I think she's great. She covers several different roles in this. I mean, she's really playing kind of uh, different variations of a character. And I was enamored with her the whole time, not just because she's always, you know, half naked. That's not why. She she was riveting, I thought. From the moment she gets there, I mean, the second she shows up, I'm like, well, she's bad. She's got to be because it's a Sherlock Holmes story. And that's just the way it's going to go. Even though she's changing into different personas, and then you you have very, very much the almost mousy innocent, and then you have fearful widow, and then you, you have the, oh, the ultra-confident spy who's just in this to go against Sherlock Holmes. I mean, each each facet that she played, I thought she, she handled pretty wonderfully, and I understood why the characters were enamored with her, because she she held the screen, which was important. And she doesn't get enough credit, I'm sure, because you've got a cast of... of more notable people, but she did a great job. Uh, I would say if you like Sherlock Holmes, if you like Billy Wilder, you need to see this film. If it's me, you should grab the DVD that has the extras. Oh, definitely. Because it really stands out, you know, kind of like Orson Welles and the Magnificent Ambersons or Von Stroheim's Greed. It's, it's recognized as kind of an incomplete or damaged potential masterpiece. But the extras... They, they fill in the blanks really well, and it, it's nice to get a little bit of behind the scenes of what Wilder, what his original conception was as compared to what it, he ended up with. But even with that, it, it's definitely a film worth watching. It is an enjoyable at many different levels. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. For many years, people have believed that Sherlock Holmes was the greatest detective in the world. But is it possible that there could exist another human being whose mental powers go even beyond those of the master? Hello, what's this? It's Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother. Starring Gene Wilder. Do you have a brother whose first name is Sherlock? I do not. You do have a brother? I do. Might I inquire as to his first name? Sheer luck. Madeline Kahn. I've got the sweetest little dimple in As Jenny Hill. How do you do? My name is Bessie Bellwood. Liar! Oh, you don't fool around, do you? Marty Feldman as a man with a photographic sense of hearing. Due to ill health, your brother has decided to take a short vacation in the country. Oh, not very long, two or three days at most, but he would very much appreciate it. He would very much appreciate it. He would very much appreciate it. If you would handle one of his... A tale of amazing feats of deduction. Chadered. Unless I'm very much mistaken, Chadered is the Egyptian word meaning to eat fat. 
Dom DeLuise as the king of all the blackmailers. Don't touch the money! You got a lovely face. And you got a lovely of Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother. That's right, Sherlock Holmes Month continues with a look at the adventures of Sherlock Holmes's smarter brother. Until then, what is the latest with you, Aaron? So I do The Hollywood Outsider. It is a film and television podcast. do that every single week. We are getting into South by Southwest and other film festivals. There's a lot going on at the Hollywood Outsider. It's available at thehollywoodoutsider.com. And I also do Presenting Hitchcock, where we look at every single Alfred Hitchcock movie. We are almost done. I've almost seen every single one that I hadn't seen. And that's available at Presenting Hitchcock. And that's also, you can find it at thehollywoodoutsider.com or your podcast app, Presenting Hitchcock. And David, what's happening with you? Uh, if anyone is interested in what I've done with Sherlock Holmes, I've got three Sherlock Holmes plays adapted into novels. I've got a two-volume nonfiction book, Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And the next production of one of my plays, Sherlock Holmes plays, is it's opening up in New Zealand this month. And my actual next new play, non-Sherlock Holmes play, is called The Antichrist Cometh which will be premiering at the Purple Rose Theater in lovely Chelsea, Michigan in 2024. Do you get to go to New Zealand for that one? Sadly, the- no. <laughs> no. That sucks. But they, they have huge billboards that they put up in the city, and they, show, they, they send me pictures, and it's just great. They produced one of my other plays earlier, and so God bless the people in New Zealand. Yeah. And, oh, actually, I, I have a... One of my plays is being produced a dozen times in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this August. Maybe you could hitch a ride on that Loch Ness Monster and go over there and check it out. I am going to try to get over there to check it out. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. (laughs) 